Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and this is the West Block podcast for Sunday, June 17th. On this Sunday, tariffs, wooing allies in Washington, and standing in solidarity across party lines. What's Canada's strategy to win a trade war against the Americans? We'll ask Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. Then it's the Trudeau government's most anticipated piece of legislation, the bill to legalize cannabis. It made it back to the House of Commons, but will it be smooth sailing from there? We're joined by Senator Tony Dean. And former Senator Nancy Green Rain joins us for some food for thought about junk food and children. But first, American sleeping bags, ketchup, and toilet paper. Those are just some of the goods that will be subject to new tariffs on July the 1st. It's part of the brewing trade war between Canada and the United States, instigated by President Donald Trump's tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum. Late last week, Canadian cabinet ministers were out in force, meeting with allies in Washington to reinforce the message, open trade with Canada benefits both countries. But will that message get through to the Oval Office before businesses on both sides of the border feel the pain? In a moment, we'll speak to Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale, but first, here's former Prime Minister... Sorry. But first, here's former Deputy Prime Minister and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, John Manley, on best approaches negotiating with President Trump. Thank you, John Manley, for joining us. Uh, one Trump associate describes President Trump's negotiating style as punch in the face first, then negotiate. And he seems to have become emotional. So how do you deal with that? You know, I think we've got an unusual uh, situation here with a president who demonstrates behaviors that are not customary and not the norm in international discussions. And I think that we, uh, we have to be, uh, uh, you know, aware of that. I think that there's no substitution for preparing, for doing the work. It is a complex political system, but I think the government's done a pretty good job of touching base in a variety of places, uh, making friends in Congress uh, with business uh, and with other interest groups in the United States. And ultimately, we hope that common sense will prevail. Is there anything the Canadian government can do differently? You know, I, th I, think, they've, uh, I think they've done everything that they could do. Uh, and I think the kind of Team Canada approach that's been demonstrated by premiers and by uh, uh, the other parties in the House of Commons is very helpful because it is important to present a common front. But, uh, you know, there's, there are demands on the table from the United States that would make a quick resolution of the NAFTA very difficult for Canada to agree to. And the imposition of the special tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, on a pretext of national security is completely unacceptable and no country worth its salt is going to stand by and let those things happen. So. I think uh, more power to Mr. Trudeau. He's, he's taken a tough stand on behalf of his country. That's what he was elected to do. You represent chief executives. You were in Washington just days ago. What are you hearing about what needs to be done and what are they telling you about how they're going to weather a tariff war? Well, ever, there's a lot of anxiety, of course, and a lot of uncertainty about the future of NAFTA. Uh, and let's not dress this up, this isn't good. Um, it, and if, if the president's objective is to create enough uncertainty and chaos that people say, just to be safe, I'm gonna put my investment in the, in the larger economy rather than one of the, the smaller ones, well then it's working because in fact, uh, Canadian businesses are looking, especially if they're reliant on trade with the United States, at whether they should put more of their investment south of the border. 
not good for Canada. But you know, Canadian uh, CEOs, the, the people that I represent, are uh, are also by and large uh, pretty loyal to this country and are Canadian promoters. And I haven't heard anyone, nobody, none of them has said to me or called me to complain about uh, about the government's conduct of the NAFTA negotiations to this point, the response to Mr. Trump's outburst or the comments that Mr. Trudeau made at the G7. Everybody is supportive of him. Realistically, you know what Trump is all about. He is trying to pressure Canada to give ground on NAFTA. So do tariffs put pressure on this country to give more? Well, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we are going to have to uh, decide what we are prepared to accept in a NAFTA. The notion that it will come out very much as it was when all of the demands are on the U.S. side is, is being rather, rather optimistic, I think. So what are we willing to, to negotiate on? I think the government has shown a willingness to negotiate on rules of origin. They even indicated in one discussion that they were willing to negotiate on dairy, which in fact, uh, the Harper government did in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So there are things that we can negotiate about. There are some demands uh, on the U.S. side that I think uh, the government would be forced to say, we're not prepared to give that, and if you walk away from NAFTA, well then, so be it. We'll have to revert to, uh, to a trade that, that isn't governed by that particular agreement. Now this is very devastating in the auto sector, very much a problem for the auto parts uh, suppliers and for the companies that, that assemble in Canada. Most of the rest of our economy, it's, it, 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 we can survive without NAFTA. What do you think the impact on average Canadians will be if this carries on the way it's going? Well, ultimately, uh, you know, tariffs uh, that are imposed by your government are paid for by your citizens, your businesses, your companies, and your consumers. So when we're retaliating, it's not the Americans that pay those tariffs, it's us. Um, and so I think uh, you increase uh, the cost of doing business in Canada, you reduce our competitiveness, ultimately it affects Canadian incomes and potentially Canadian jobs. I think you'll probably see the currency adjust somewhat, which, you know, some people say it's great, the currency goes down, but it effectively makes us poorer because we can buy fewer uh, goods and services from abroad. So it's, there's no way to dress this up, Eric. This is not good. Is the government a little bit lucky in that there is broad support at home, in part because Donald Trump is so unpopular here? Oh, I think that's right. There's no, there's no, there's no question about that, that uh, Mr. Trump has made himself very unpopular. He's not a Canadian style. Um, and, uh, you know, he's not very popular with a very large segment of his own population, but he is popular with a segment that he cares about. So uh, this is a very complex figure, and, and, uh, and, and people uh, find him very polarizing, not surprisingly. But I think Canadians as a whole... Um, don't like being pushed around. We, we know they're a bigger country, a bigger economy, uh, but I, you know we exist as an independent country. We didn't just fold in with them when we could have in the past, and, uh, and we take some pride in being our, our own country. Do you think the Mueller investigation or the midterms or anything else could change the equation at all in terms of NAFTA and trade? 
Well, I think a lot depends on how you see the uh, requirements for the United States to withdraw from NAFTA. Uh, it's commonly believed, but not universally believed, that Congress would have to approve it. So um, whether the president even now has the votes in Congress to actually withdraw from NAFTA and whether he would have them after the midterms, those are important questions. Some in the U.S. have assured me that he couldn't pass that through Congress now, that there are enough Republicans in, in favor of, of NAFTA and enough Democrats that are in favor of defeating anything that Mr. Trump proposes that NAFTA would survive. So well, I think we'll have to see. But what some people call a zombie NAFTA, where president isn't happy and it's not clear whether it's going to last and so on, in some ways, that suits his purpose because the uncertainty is, in fact, driving investment into the United States. Obviously, you have had close ties in the past with Washington in government and now with the business side of it. And obviously, Washington is a different place now. But uh, what would be your blunt advice to our government? Well, I'd say, uh, as, as they said in Britain during the war, uh, keep calm and carry on. I think uh, Minister Freeland has been exemplary in the way she's conducted herself and conducted the discussion, firm but uh, polite and thoughtful, uh, building uh, bridges with uh, U.S. decision makers. So I think just uh, stay the course. We're, we're, we're dealing with uh, a president who is unpredictable. Um, unless you read his book, uh, The Art of the Deal, he's pretty much doing uh, what he says in that book he would do. He, he thinks he can do better in chaos than anybody he's, uh, he's negotiating with, and so he's precipitating chaos. We have to just you know, stand back and let the smoke clear and, and, uh, and, and hold to our course. And finally, is there any way to reach Donald Trump on an emotional level? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think he's a bit pathological in his desire to be the center of attention. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that uh, you know, you, you probably should consult, or maybe Prime Minister Trudeau should consult with, I don't know, a psychologist or somebody to say, how do I deal with, with, uh, with a, a, an important counterpart who has, uh, has this tendency to narcissistic personality disorder, I, I think it's very tough. Uh, this breaks all the rules of international engagement that any of us have learned in our lifetimes. John Manley, thank you for joining us. Joining us now is Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. Mr. Goodale, that's your old colleague, John Manley. He can be a bit more blunt. He's out of government now. Um, but you're dealing with a U.S. president who is emotional now about Canada. How do you deal with that, or is that necessary to deal with his emotions? Well, I, I think you need to be uh, calm and clear and resolute uh, and uh, avoid uh, anything that, uh, that sounds like an ad hominem attack. Uh, focus on the facts and, and uh, make the, uh, the case for Canada as, uh, as clearly and as strongly as we can. We've been doing that. We'll continue to do that. Uh, we need to make sure that, that Canadians stay fully united and strong and unified together. Thank you, President Trump. Well, it's, uh, it certainly contributed a, a strong measure of, uh, of Canadian unity. Uh, just uh, the end of uh, the week, uh, 
uh, Christian Freeland standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, with uh, the Premier elect of Ontario. Uh, the uh, pre Premier of Saskatchewan uh, uh, a week before was in uh, in Washington, uh, carrying the Canadian message uh, very very strongly. Uh, there's a there's complete uh, cohesion among the Canadian side, and more than anything else, we need to make sure that stays that way. But the tariffs are here now. How how will they hurt? How should Canadians be? dealing with them and preparing for them because you know there comes a point at which the counter counter tariffs etc this is all going to hurt and so the goodwill you're getting from Canadians right now that may not last well uh, we have we have said throughout this that uh, we would prefer not to get into this situation that that we were imposing our retaliation uh, more out of uh, sorrow than anger uh, but we would stand firm for Canada and for Canadians. We would defend our workers, uh, defend our industries that employ those workers, and do so in a way that was absolutely measured and proportionate, uh, so that it was uh, it was dollar for dollar in relation to what the American tariffs had uh, had had done to us. It is President Trump's style uh, to want the opponent, in this case, to pay a price. Uh, he says Canadians are going to pay more, is what he's suggesting. I mean, do the tariffs increase the pressure on us to give on NAFTA? Is that what this is about? Well, I, uh, who knows what his ultimate uh, tactic or... Uh, but does or, it increase the pressure on you? Uh, well, it, 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 these are pressure-packed negotiations right from, right from the very beginning. Uh, the idea of retaliating... Uh, is to make the point to the United States that their action, which we think is is illegal as well as being very ill-advised, and certainly uh, it has no basis in national security, um, our our retaliatory tariffs are are intended to make the point to the United States there is a cost to you, uh, and for for every one job that you may think you are either saving or creating in steel, you're probably losing 10 or 15 elsewhere in the U.S. economy. Because they have, they have a trade surplus in mm -hmm. steel with us today, $2 billion. We are their biggest customer for buying steel. Uh, so there, there is no economic logic uh, and there's no, there's no political logic in, in what is done. We will be f clear and firm uh, in, uh, and somebody in the U.S. political system uh, said the other day, uh, don't doubt the resolve of a Canadian. Minister Freeland said that uh, wants, wants to get the talks back on track for NAFTA, mm -hmm. uh, expects to see a, a greater push this summer. The Prime Minister suggested uh, that, uh, that supply management and dairy is something where there's something to give. Can you be more frank about just that you've got to give something there because that is such an important one to Trump, even if it's just about Wisconsin and the electoral map? Well, one thing we have to explain uh, to the United States is that even with their complaints about, about supply management, they have a heavier degree of subsidization in the United States than exists in Canada, and they have a trade surplus with Canada of $333 million a year in dairy. Uh, so we've been, we've been clear that we will, we will defend our dairy farmers. Something has to be given in that area, and I don't mean give, but, uh, but uh, there's got to be some a, a change that's uh, probably afoot in that regard, just because you've heard him over and over again emphasize that one. Well, again, we emphasize back. Uh, under the trade rules that have existed for the last 10 years, 
more than that actually, but, but the statistics over the last 10 years indicate that American farm goods exported to Canada have increased by, by 46% and they have a $1.9 billion yeah. surplus overall with Canada. We're going to stick to the facts and, and, uh, and defend the Canadian case which is very clear that, that their form of subsidization in the United States is different, but it's subsidization nonetheless. Uh, and Canadian dairy farmers are not the problem that's causing difficulty for the, uh, for the U.S. Their problem is a system that, that by its very nature causes structural surpluses which they have to find a way to dispose of. That is a problem that their system created, not ours. Um, you said you've been around since the, for some time. I, <laughs> I count back to the 1970s. Have you ever seen anything quite like this in dealing with uh, this administration? Uh, there have been points of uh, tension and dispute with the United States in the, uh, uh, in the past. You remember the, uh, the arguments with John Diefenbaker and, uh, and, uh, and others, if you go back uh, yeah. a long enough time. Uh, but certainly in, in terms of the, uh, uh, the modern relationship with the United States, this, this, this tension is about as, as extreme as it uh, has been. It sounds like uh, Canadians are willing to absorb a little bit on this and maybe some pain. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, Ralph Goodale, thank you for talking to us. Nice to be here. The government's pot bill is currently the ping-pong ball between the House of Commons and the Senate. The government has accepted several amendments but rejected others. Now it's back to the Senate with pressure to pass the bill this week before the House rises. When will Canadians be able to light up legally? Joining us now, Senator Tony Dean. Senator, thank you for joining us. Um, the Health Minister, Jeanette Petitpa-Taylor, said to you and your colleagues this this past week. We agree with the majority of the proposed amendments that they have brought forward. I know that you want to hear our position on the issue of home grow. Respectfully, when it comes to that amendment, we will not be accepting it. Uh, and we look forward to for them receiving our, our position and look forward to receiving their, their position. So, Senator Dean, the government looks forward to hearing your position. What is your position? Well, we're in the process of uh, uh, developing that position as a group of independent senators. I, I can tell you, Eric, my, my personal view is that, um, like a number of other senators, I, I was a little bit disappointed with the government's response this, this week. Um, uh, senators and my group, I think, in particular, worked uh, for seven months um, in, a, in a diligent way at, at uh, five Senate committees. To, to understand the legislation, to understand its purposes, to understand the impacts, um, to understand the nature of cannabis use in, in, in Canada and all of its harms. Um, uh, introduced a number of, of, of thoughtful amendments, a lot of, uh, a lot of consideration went into them. And, and I, I think it's fair to say that we were expecting a little bit more. And, and the, the touchstone in all of this was, of course, the home grow or mm -hmm. home cultivation amendment. Which, which I think independent senators considered to be uh, somewhat of a compromise. There, there could have been uh, harder amendments around, around home cultivation. It was always a, a little bit of a lightning rod, I'll say, um, as, as, a, as, a, as a policy initiative. And um, I, I think that we're in a position now, we find ourselves in a position as, as independent senators, certainly, where we'd like a little bit more information about the reasoning that, that lies behind the decisions that were made. We're, we're kind of a bit of an information-driven group. Mm -hmm. um, 
and there was lots of information uh, in, in, uh, throughout the last several months, perhaps not enough to explain the government's position at this, at this, um, at this point towards the end of the road. And that's the, that's the, that's the nub here is the, the, the homegrown and some provinces, Quebec, Manitoba, they want to be able to ban home grow. Uh, the government says no to that. Is it your view that you can kind of reconcile to that? Is there a point at which the Senate has to just say, well, we can't get everything we want and we are the, you know, the, the body of sober second thought and that's all we are. And so do you just get on when saying, well, we might have to accept that? Or do you think that there's something that you're gonna be able to send back again? Well, well, I think the Senate always reaches that point. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we are there right now. Mm. Um, I, I think the um, uh, senators again, I'll say, are looking for a little bit more information behind um, the, the, the government's message. Uh, a, a number of, of options are available to senators where we're in the middle of discussing those. Uh, that's a process um, that, you know, I think will continue uh, today and tomorrow. And um, we, will, um, we will see what happens when the message comes back uh, early next week. Um, I, 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 I can't predict what that will be. Um, I do know, I mean, as, as much as my personal view is, it was of one of, the, of disappointment. I, I also recognize that, that the government is accountable at the end of the day here for mm -hmm. making decisions. We can provide advice. Um, governments make decisions and, and governments are held accountable uh, uh, for them. So um, one of the things that I know from working close to governments as a long-term public servant is that, is that when people look at this bill a year or two from now, and whether they're praising it or whether they found uh, the, the odd problem with it, um, nobody's gonna look back and say, what did the Senate say? The accountability for the bill working or not is going to flow like water or electricity directly to elected officials. And, uh, and is everything else, do you think, that those are humps that can be overcome, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of branding and whether or not, uh, you know, the, the producers can be, can get some promotional value out of this and whether that should be stopped? Well, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I can't speak for my conservative colleagues. You've, you've mentioned a couple of things that, that they are interested in. Um, we may have, uh, we may land on different priorities. I, I think that if there's a common denominator, denominator that I sense uh, across the street, it's, uh, it's the home cultivation mm, okay. uh, issue. That, that seems to be on everybody's mind. Um, why the urgency, do you think, at this moment to get it done right now? Is it because there would be a political cost or is there a societal economic cost to getting this passed now? Well, I think the government's been quite clear, and, and I'm supportive of this thinking, that um, we've, we've, had, we've had a very long-term relationship with cannabis reform uh, in, in this country. Um, the Ladane Commission in 72, the Nolan Commission, a conservative senator in in, um, in 2002, concluding that, uh, that legalization and regulation was probably safer for young Canadians than prohibition. We've had, we've had um, uh, 14 months in Parliament with this bill. We've had tons of notice for provinces to get ready, and, and most of them are. Um, producers are ready. Strikes me that consumers are ready. 
Um, it, is, uh, it is as good a time as any to launch legalized and highly regulated uh, cannabis in, in, in Canada in a very limited way and cautionary way. So I'm, I mean, as a sponsor of the bill, I'm, I'm supportive of, of this legislation and, mm. and I've been quite public about that. Um, I think that, uh, that this is the right time. We'll learn as we go, inevitably. We'll never get it uh, perfectly right. So I, um, I'm an advocate of moving sooner rather than later. Well, uh, the government clearly wants to have this in place and people are in a position to buy it uh, by later this year. Um, but this week will be a very defining moment. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Tucked into the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Ottawa is the Carlton Grill, a favorite dining spot for Nancy Green Rain, the just-retired senator and former Olympic skiing gold medalist. She not only enjoys a healthy diet, but has worked for two years on legislation to ban advertising unhealthy food to children. A most suitable topic on our segment, Food for Thought. Former Senator Nancy Green Rain, thank you for joining us on Food for Thought, so apt because of your interest in nutrition. Tell us first of all a little bit about the meal and this place that you've chosen. Well, uh, it's breakfast and um, I always like to eat breakfast. <laughs> and this place is my home when I'm in Ottawa. I've been staying at the Sheraton for the whole time I've been in the Senate and I really enjoy it. It's kind of like family here and so I thought why not ask if we could do the interview here and they always have good food. And is there something about this meal that uh, speaks to your interest in nutrition? Well, I, I like to have my breakfast um, plain. I like to have some protein, so we have eggs and poached eggs and um, I don't like the hash brown, so I've got tomatoes and some fruit and yogurt. So pretty simple and nice brown toast. Before we get too much into the nutrition part uh, and as you're, as you're in your role as Senator Nancy Green Rain, let me ask you about being skier Nancy Green. Uh, for people of my generation, you were a sports hero. Um, remind us of just what you achieved because you know Canada won a gold, one gold and one silver in Grenoble, as we call it, Grenoble, France, in 1968, and you won them both. And, and we won a bronze in the hockey. And <laughs> bronze in hockey, that's right. <laughs> No, and I really remember that because I was getting my medals and my gold medal in the arena that day and um, it was between periods in the hockey game and the hockey team stayed out in the box and were banging their sticks on the ice. That so it was quite a thrill. We, we all knew you as the sports hero yeah. that you were then and yet I understand you didn't become sort of familiar to Canadians in some ways until you started doing Mars Bar commercials because I remember those, those ads on TV. Now you have kind of a different view on nutrition and when it comes to advertising um, candy products. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I learned through that process, that, um, actually I had, I had a, a series of commercials and then stopped for a few years and they came back and did some more. And when they came back to do the second shots, my kids were just going into grade one and I said, oh, I don't think I should do this because candy's not good for kids. And when I saw the, the, what was in their products compared to the other ones on the market, I was convinced that it was the best candy. And so I decided to do it again. And there's, there's room for candy, there's room for sweets as treats, but not all the time and not to the point where you become addicted to the sugar. Well, tell us about the legislation, because this is not unimportant legislation at all no. when it comes to advertising for kids under the age of 13 yeah. and what they should be seeing. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting because the first legislation 
to curb the marketing or advertising to children was put forward in 1974. Mm -hmm. And there have been attempts since then. And you know, we did a study in the Senate on the rising rates of obesity in Canada. And one thing that came out loud and clear was the targeted marketing to children was really, really harmful because it creates in them uh, a desire for the product. They then beg their parents for it, and sometimes the parents give in. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> and and the, power, the advertising, very powerful. I mean, a good example of that is I got criticized by people, media in Quebec, who were really making fun of me because I was going to take Tony the Tiger off the cereal boxes. Yes. And this was a 50-year-old man talking about how important Tony the Tiger was. And it just tells me that how powerful that was that even today he has an emotional connection to that cartoon character. So, you know, it, it, they know that if they get uh, brand loyalty at an early age, yeah. they have a customer for life. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars being spent targeting children. It's not right. And so uh, the, the legislation will achieve what, do you think? Well, I'm hoping that it'll really cut down on the number of targeted messages going to kids. Parents are still free to purchase the products if they want. That's up to the parents. But you don't want them having to deal with that nag factor. And, you know, I'm not saying that the government should say, you can't eat this. They're just saying, don't target, I'm saying, don't target the children with advertising to make them ask their parents for it. That's not fair to the parents and more than 85% of Canadians support this kind of legislation. Well, it's amazing, I mean, just even talking to you, the energy that you have here to be already now past the retirement age that's required for a senator. What are you going to do next? Somebody told me that retirement, the definition of retirement is when you work more hours, but you don't get paid. <laughs> that's right. And, and I look around our country, and we have active seniors, retirees, grandparents out there doing things with their grandkids and staying fit and healthy all their lives. And I really see that in skiing. If you ski and you keep on skiing, when I talk to the 80 plus, you know, people over 80 years old who are still skiing and skiing regularly, I say to them, what's the secret? And they just laugh and say, just don't stop. And then somebody always pipes up and don't be so damn cheap, get some new gear, it makes it easier. I would, think, I would think it would be don't fall down because as you get older, we are a little more brittle as we, uh, as we age. And you... Not if you ski. No, is that right, eh? Yeah, because it keeps your bones really healthy. Oh, it's really, really good. You know, in skiing, you don't really feel it, but there's a lot of forces working. Yeah. And those forces are very, very good to build strong, healthy bones. And you'll have a chance to ski some more, you think, now that uh, the Senate is I, behind you? I, you know, before I went to the Senate, I skied 130 days a year. In the Senate, I've been skiing 80, 85, but no, I'll be back up to 130. Wow. My husband skis every day, too. We live right on the slopes, so at Sun Peaks, I, I literally walk out the door, put my skis on, and away I go. Well, you're, you're an inspiration to Canadians, and you have been for, uh, for more than 50 years. Uh, thank you for giving us so much food for thought on this. Thank day. you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block. <laughs>